Children with special needs don't always get the attention they require in mainstream classrooms. Tonight, meet the moms who wanted the perfect school for their children with Down syndrome, so they opened their own. It's the city's only independent inclusion school where children of all backgrounds and identities learn side by side. Then, outspoken author and activist Irshad Manji takes on labels and gender roles. Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Tonight, we welcome the co-founders of a unique school that is providing a model for inclusive learning in the city. The Ideal School of Manhattan is New York City's only K-12 independent inclusion school. School was founded some 17 years ago by three mothers out of a specific need, a truly inclusive, diverse school with small class sizes where students of all abilities can learn together in the same classroom. School has grown over the years, now moving to a new, larger home down in the financial district. And here to talk about the school as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative, focusing on solutions to structural inequities, are two of the co-founders of the Ideal School of Manhattan, Audra Zuckerman and Michelle Smith. Ladies, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Uh, Audra, let me come to you first, if I can. So I gave a brief background there in the introduction, but we want to learn more about just how and why the decision was made to, to, to create this approach to learning. Sure. So um, back in 2005, Michelle and I both had young children with Down syndrome, and we were looking for a school setting where our children could be included with their peers, could go to school with their their peers of the same age. They had been included in everything that we did in our lives up until then, went to inclusive preschool settings. And we thought, this is New York City. There's so many school options. This won't be an issue. But we ended up coming up against a lot of roadblocks in this process. Um, many of the public school settings couldn't provide the resources or wouldn't provide the resources to support our students in the way that we knew, knew that they needed it to be successful. Um, the private schools weren't interested in taking students with Down syndrome. And many of the special education schools were not inclusive um, or they really focused on a particular type of disability, not including Down syndrome. So we thought, this is crazy. Um, this Again, it's New York City. How could this be possible? We shouldn't need to leave um, the city that we love and wanted to raise our children in just to find an inclusive educational setting. So we got together with another family and we started to say to each other, let's try this. Let's try to start a school where um, students of all abilities can learn together in one place, be accepted for who they are, have a curriculum that meets each student 
where they are in the learning process and can can replicate the beautiful community of New York City itself and the diversity of New York City itself. Michelle, let me ask you to, to, to expand on that a little bit. And, and I think Audra, some of her answer provided that, but to, to, for some clarity for our viewers, when we talk about the notion of inclusive education, what does that actually mean? It means co-educating, not pulling out of classrooms, not it making anyone feel bad or extra good and creating a model where people can learn together as long as the program and the children are surrounded with differentiated instruction. That, that's an interesting point. Let me ask you to follow up on that because I, I know and I'm sure you you run into this where there are, some people might have a misperception or just not, just don't fully understand it. And they might say, well, wait a minute. If you're putting everybody in one classroom, does that mean that those with, we hear the term special needs often used, does that mean they're going to get all the emphasis and the others will not? What is the answer to that in terms of the balance in the classroom? So our our answer to that in our classrooms is co-teaching and everybody is met with how they learn. And so all the kids typically developing Children that are non-typical are having individualized education learning plans to meet them where they are. And so if math is being taught, math is directed the way it needs to be directed for that student. And nobody's being dragged down. It's a myth. And nobody is left behind that might be learning at a different pace. And our answer to it was creating a co-teaching model to differentiate the instruction for that particular learner. It it sounds like such common sense, right? It sounds so <laughs> simple. Right, we're in the same structure, the same room, everybody's together, but we have teaching that is tailored to the groups. So I guess my question to you, Audra, is, and, and you kind of mentioned this before, why wasn't it being done in New York City before you all did it? Well, it's a great question. And I think there's a couple of reasons. So first is it does require some additional resources. You have to make prior, every organization has to make decisions about priorities and commitment of resources. So one way that resources are important when you're talking about inclusion is the co-teaching model that Michelle mentioned. So that's a general educator and a special educator working together in a classroom so that's that's an additional full head teacher in a classroom. Um, there is training that is involved. There are other resource issues and you have to make them a priority. But I think the bigger issue that you come up against when you're talking about inclusion in other educational systems is it's a matter of prioritizing and believing in the value of having a, a excuse me, a diverse educational environment. So at Ideal, everybody there is on board with the mission of inclusion. It is inclusive from the top down to the bottom up. Nobody walks in that door and has to leave their identity behind them at the door. It's a philosophy, it's, a, it's in our DNA, right? So if you are trying to convince the educators at the school or the leadership of the school or the teachers there, that's a, you're in a different situation. 
what we have at IDEA and what we would love to see in other schools, public, private, anything across the country, is a belief in our children, the belief that all children can learn, all children are valuable to a community, that everybody brings something to the table, and that all students are teachable. And everybody at the ideal school believes that. And we all support one another. We all celebrate each other's differences. It's okay if one student struggles in one area, there'll be another area that they that they are spectacular in. Michelle, so to help us understand, what does a classroom in the ideal school look like and, and feel like and sound like? Yeah, Audra loves this one. Um, Audra, I'd love to toss this to you. Good. Audra, it's all yours. Quite honestly, it looks like every other classroom in America. Our classrooms don't look different. And in fact, oftentimes you're not even going to be able to know which students are receiving extra support in the school. Not everybody has a visible disability. Um, What you might see that is different in an ideal school classroom is there are smaller class sizes. You're going to see more instructors in the room, but you're not going to really know which teachers are focusing on which students because everybody's working with everybody. You might see flexible grouping. You might see students all together in a classroom learning about a subject at one point and then breaking off into smaller groups, receiving their differentiated instruction, doing different projects related to the same topic in small groups. You might see at the ideal school something that I am really proud of, that I think we're all really proud of that we do, is we do not pull students out of the classroom to get their therapies. So you might see all students leaving the classroom to go to different electives. One student might be going to an art elective. One student might be going to a music elective. One student might be getting occupational therapy. There's no stigma. There's no difference um, in how they're treated and, and perceived by the community. Here's what you feel when you walk in that school and you watch these human beings, teachers, admin, and the students with each other. You feel respect. You feel complete immersion of this isn't my friend Dylan with Down syndrome and he can't read. This is my friend Dylan. That's what you feel. You see and viscerally feel how if we started teaching human beings at young ages that differences are okay, they're not scary, we all have have to adapt, we all have to coexist, it's an absolutely remarkable social study to watch and feel. How did your own children, how did your own children do? How did they benefit from this type of environment? Well, I can tell you that my son, Max, who is now 23 years old, so he started the school. He was in first grade when we opened it. He was in the first graduating class in 2018. He is proud of the fact that he has Down syndrome. He doesn't think of it as a negative. It is just a part of his identity. It is just part of who he is. And that is something we work very, very hard to cultivate at the school with an intentional identity curriculum, with the social justice work that we do from kindergarten on every student. And it's not just students with disabilities. It's all of our students. We have an incredibly diverse population um, are are celebrating one another's unique aspects of their identity from the beginning. There's also the fact that I think he did reach his potential in all of the subject areas that he worked on at school because he felt safe. 
he felt accepted, and he was taught to access the curriculum at the level where he was at each stage. Michelle, how about you? Yeah, you know, uh, our model tackles bullying without have to say tackles bullying. My son didn't get bullied. Kids with Down syndrome can be targets. Kids with differences can be targets. Kids without disabilities can be targets. This model, our school is a movement. Our school was a pioneering movement way back when. And the issues that we're seeing now with bullying and the differences and and just the harassment is inclusion solves the problem. This coexistent concept from a young age, and it's in the DNA of everybody and everything. We have word of the month ideal. It's not word of the month for special needs children. It's word of the month. We are all about civil rights, civil justice, social justice. This is an answer to one of the most systemic problems we are seeing in youth. Yeah, Yeah, once again, the ideal school of Manhattan, just as I said before, a a marvelous idea that has been put into play and has accomplished everything that we could hope for and we just need more of it. So uh, our thanks to both of you, Audra and and Michelle for joining us and and we'll look forward to maybe talking again down the road and, and seeing how all of this is evolving. You all be well, take care now. Thank you. Thank you. Irshad Manji's groundbreaking book, The Trouble with Islam, made her one of the most admired and most reviled writers and thinkers around the world. As a voice who refuses to be silenced, her strength lies in her seeming mastery of moral courage. She's a woman who has had many labels thrown at her, and she refuses to wear just one of them. Refugee, Muslim, lesbian, professor, and also from some heretic. Well, she joins us now to talk about her new book, which has just come out called Don't Label Me, an incredible conversation for divided times. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Right back at you. Thank you, Jack. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but let's start with labels. Why do you think, and I know you talk about this, why do you think that that we as a society find labels so seductive? Oh, Jack, it's not just we as a society, it's humanity. Look, um, you know, we human beings think first and foremost emotionally. And uh, biologically speaking, the easiest emotion to have is fear. Now, uh, top that up with the fact that we are all immersed in digital technologies that are deliberately designed to amp up our emotions. And then finish it all off with the fact that very few of us have ever been taught to um, sort of be aware of our emotions, let alone express them constructively. So in this toxic cauldron, uh, labels become convenient tools with which to um, sort of indulge our emotions and avoid reflection. Convenient, I know I said, convenient and require very little work. Well, exactly. Hence, convenient. Look, we are all, you know, uh, born with brains that are both primitive and evolved. But the first thing that any kind of stimuli goes through in the brain is the primitive part. And the primitive part doesn't want to work. It only reacts. So we have to figure out ways literally to outwit our own brains. And you talk about some of these ways. I'm going to get to them in a moment. But I do want to talk about, I don't want to minimize it by calling it a device that that drives this conversation. Uh, We talk about an incredible conversation because it's also a very unique conversation Mm -hmm. that you're having, Mm -hmm. something that was very special to you, Lily, your dog, no longer with us. But a conversation throughout this, 
And I've heard you talk about the fact that it, it, it's what helped to stimulate the idea behind that. Absolutely. How? So, you know, I just uh, mentioned the most dangerous four-letter F word in the English language, and that is fear. fear. Exactly. Well, uh, believe it or not, I grew up with a very unhealthy fear of dogs. One, uh, one year, I was having a particularly tough time with my health, and my uh, then-partner, now-wife, Laura, said to me, Irshad, you have got to evolve. You've got to get past your fear. Let's adopt a rescue dog, and you'll see what a healer that dog can be. Well, how can I possibly teach moral courage if I'm not willing to go first? And so we brought Lily home, and Jack, all I can tell you is that for the two precious years that I had with her, I learned not only were my own fears of dogs begging to be overcome, but when I did overcome those fears, I learned so much from Lily. The value, for example, of just getting out of our devices, closing up the laptop, and getting into the grass and playing. Yes, I know, for, you know, for, for animal lovers, that's a no-brainer. But understand that today, we are all doing this. And you know, if we could just realize that by slowing down, taking a deep breath, actually, what we wind up doing is transcending the fear-based part of the brain. So that even when we're engaging somebody we disagree with, the first thing to do and the best thing to do is to just breathe. Who knew? So simple. Thank you, we Lily. Did, yeah, or Lily. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the notion of labels. You mentioned the concept of tribalism. We're kind of hardwired for that. And you look at that in the ways it manifests itself. And, and I, I, you and I were talking about this beforehand, and I was talking about how people don't have conversations anymore. It's as if fear, we're fearful of somebody rejecting our opinions. That's right. We don't want to accept their opinions. Right. Uh, how much of this do you think flows from what we see, and, and I'm going to talk about both parties mm -hmm. in Washington. You bet. You, you, you cannot have now a disagreement politically without vilifying the person you're disagreeing. You know, it's been, it's been described often as the politics of personal destruction. Right, right. But, but has that always been, or has it become more enhanced yeah. lately? Yeah, well, uh, I'm gonna guess that you would agree with me that it has become more enhanced yeah. lately. We've been living with the politics of personal destruction, and I believe that was Bill Clinton's phrase Correct. from way back when. Correct. We've been living that, with that for a long time, but if you're wondering why it's become even worse now, I would say that social media and the impulsive uh, sort of uh, triggers that it feeds to us um, has made things that much worse, which is why, and I think this is where you were going, mm -hmm. let's get our heads out of that monitor or that screen right. and actually speak with one another face to face. You know what, Jack? I tell a story in this book about two young people, one a biracial hip hop artist, the other um, a white guy. Both of them completely disagree about what should happen with the Mississippi state flag, okay? Because it, you know, contains right. some Confederate has, has a, In the corner, has exactly. the Confederate flag. As exactly. Part of the state flag. She wants it to change. He doesn't. Um, something that she says and does goes viral. He gets in touch with her. She invites him to the backyard mm. to sit down and talk. Let's discuss this. By the end of that experience, it's not that he changes his mind. That would be too easy a conclusion. No, it's that he realizes that he cares more about her than he does about the flag. That is what human-to-human -human relationships 
or but human to lily relationships, relationships yeah. can do for but us. But how do we get ourselves away from, and again, I, I think this is something that you say is sort of human nature. We like to be surrounded by like-minded people. Yeah. We like to be surrounded by people who sound like us, yeah. who think like, who us, like us, who look like us. And, and that's, we know that. So how do we get ourselves to a different place, even though that is all reinforced by, you know, you look at the news and people talk about there are a lot of venues out there that just have an agenda and they're beating the drum. That's right. Look, opinion has always been an integral part of, of journalism. Yep. But what troubles me is we're seeing more of opinion and less of fact, less discussion. Yeah. And so how do we get people to remove themselves from the echo chambers and to be willing to sit and listen? Might not change their mind. Right. But and at, that's least, okay. at least they'll be willing to listen. Exactly. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, first of all, it begins with every single one of us. In other words, instead of pointing fingers at so-and-so because he doesn't listen to me, ask yourself, how am I contributing to this problem? Meaning, if I'm eye-rolling, if I'm berating instead of relating, if I'm labeling this person, then I have fixed him in place. I have frozen him in time. What motivation have I given that other person to then lower his emotional defenses so that he can hear me? So here's what I say. When you uh, are entering a conversation or wanting to enter into a conversation with somebody who profoundly disagrees with you on something that you are passionate about, ask them, Tell me, what am I missing about your perspective? Don't go in making statements. Ask sincere questions. And then listen. Listen to understand, not to win. Because this doesn't have to be a debate. Well, that, that's, it's a discussion. That's interesting because I would suspect when you, and, and I know this, there's certain things that I don't get involved in discussions with people anymore. Sure. Because I know I'm not going to change their mind. So, but... But I probably should well, at least should. have a discussion and with I'm, them. And I'm because so glad, it, you, Jack. You, I, I think the fear is you say to yourself, why should I bother engaging in this discussion? I'm right. not going to change my mind. But, but here's my question to you. Why go in there even wanting to change the other person's mind? Right. Imagine what you might be able to learn from that other person by simply listening. And this is not being Pollyannish, let me tell you. What I mean by what you might be able to learn is this. If you can figure out what values they have, what perspective they're coming from, that is crucial information with which you can reframe your arguments down the road so that if you're really stuck on needing to change their mind, you'll have the information necessary to now express your position in a way that they can finally hear. Let me talk about the younger generation here mm -hmm. because I know you talk about it in your book. Uh, I was in college at a time when when the the nation was roiled over Vietnam. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I most remember about my college experience, I was saying this to some of my students, I said, I can't remember the courses I took. I know some of them that were favorites, but if you ask me to give you a list, I'm not gonna be able to do it. But I do remember the conversations. And I remember you know, sitting in dining halls after dinner and talking about the civil rights movement and, and the Vietnam yeah. War. And uh, you get the sense that there are not the same level, and I'm told this by some of my students, there's not the same level of conversation mm. on campuses. And, and again, some of it, I think, comes from that, that, that fear that you mentioned. Why, why do you think that You've is? You've nailed it. You've nailed it. And I've actually, you know, I work with um, college students around the country. Um, and much more often than not, regardless of their labels, whatever their color, whatever their gender, whatever their, you know, religion, they say to me, I'm afraid to be judged 
if I ask, get this, the wrong question. That is where we have arrived as a society, and yes, as humanity. That if you use a word, you make a clumsy mistake, you are, you know, honestly just misspoken. Um, it's just very easy to get slammed, shamed, blamed, and gamed. And nobody wants that, right? So this is why I think, you know, teaching the skills of moral courage is so important. Um, what do you mean by moral courage? I mean, Define that I mean doing the right thing in the face of your fears. And so if, for example, you know that uh, something that somebody is promoting, a message that they're promoting, is somehow either inaccurate or derogatory, the way to approach it is key here. I'm not saying don't stand up to you know, intolerance or, or outright hate. Absolutely stand up to it. But that doesn't mean that you have to go into it guns a-blazing, because you really will be shot down in that case. Rather, you need to be uh, intelligent about it. You know? And that means um, listening, but then asking. You know, again, how did you come up with this? I'm genuinely interested. In the book, another story I tell is about a uh, now former white nationalist who reformed himself. Notice I didn't say was reformed. Mm -hmm. He reformed himself, how? Because of an amazing friendship he had with an observant Jew who didn't turn his back, who didn't get in his face, who didn't try to make him disappear, but rather who listened and engaged. And over the course of three years, this white nationalist realized the views I've got, they're not factual. And moreover, they hurt the very person that I care about. Well, that's it, that, that is a great story. The book is filled with great stories. Once again, it's called Don't Label Me, An Incredible Conversation for Divided Times. Yoshad, it's, you and I could talk for hours here. And I would love <laughs> we that. We might continue that, but for, for now, TL, for now, talk. exactly. Yeah. But it, it's just, uh, once again, a, a, a very provocative, thoughtful, uh, and I think extraordinarily helpful look. So our thanks to you and to Lily. I was just going to say, just heard from Lily. She yes. gives her thanks right back. Our thanks. You, thank, thank you so much. You be well. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.